Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I am back, but Bethan isn't. She is not very well. She's not been well for a couple of weeks and I forced her to take a week off. So it's just me this week. Um, I've got a, I'm going to call it a traumatic episode for you. Uh, we'll be back together next week and our usual banter and frivolities will resume then. Before we get into this week's episode though, I want to tell you about the first of today's show sponsors. Me and Bethan are huge fans of this company. We are delighted to have these guys back. They are a small, family-run business specialising in quality British-made jewellery. I am, of course, talking about Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited. Focusing on all aspects of jewellery design as well as jewellery parts, loose stones, repairs and bespoke one-off design pieces, Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited works with a variety of metals such as yellow, white and rose gold as well as silver and platinum so there really is something for everyone. You can buy limited edition pieces like I did for my mum earlier this year. I got her a silver butterfly necklace which she loved. Or you can have pieces made to your own specification with your own choice of gemstones and diamonds. And I know Bethan did that actually. She got Dan to create a bespoke bracelet for one of her best friends who got married back in the summer. And I know they were both blown away by it. So with the festive season around the corner, it's time to get serious about your Christmas shopping. Take a look at the huge range of jewellery on offer at beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and see who you could treat to a sparkling piece of jewellery. We have a special offer for listeners of Seeing Red, an amazing timeless discount code which will give you 10% off your entire basket with no minimum spend. Just use code RED10 at checkout. So that's the word RED and the number 10. All orders are available with worldwide shipping and the website is ever-changing with new products being added daily and they have special offers and unique rarities on offer throughout the year. So what are you waiting for? Head over to beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and use code RED10 for 10% off your entire order. Done that? Great. Let's crack on with the show. Issei Sagawa certainly had a way with words. Quote, I am amazed. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Tall, blonde, with pure white skin, she astonishes me with her grace. I invited her to my home for Japanese dinner. She accepts. After the meal, I asked her to read my favourite German expressionist poem. As she reads, I can't keep my eyes off of her. Sadly, this is not an extract from a romantic novel, but an excerpt from Sagawa's book In the Fog, widely assumed to be a detailed confession, and it is not long before the prose soon takes a more sinister tone as he continues. After she leaves, I can still smell her body on the bedsheet where she sat reading the poem. I lick the chopsticks and dishes she used. I can taste her lips. My passion is so great, I want to eat her. If I do, she will be mine forever. There is no escape from this desire. How we get to this point is as fascinating as it is macabre. The story begins over 70 years ago in the city of Kobe. Kobe is the seventh largest city in Japan, located on the southern side of the main island of Honshu. It was here in April 1949 that a heavily pregnant Tomi Sagawa tripped and fell down some steps, almost causing a miscarriage. The baby survived this near-fatal fall, but arrived prematurely on Monday the 26th of April. 
The baby was so tiny that he could fit into the palm of his father Akira's hand. The proud parents named their son Issei, also known as Pang, and looked forward to taking him home. However, the premature birth caused several complications and Issei developed enteritis, a disease of the small intestine. Eventually, Tomi and Akira were able to leave the hospital with their new son, and although Issei remained small and was weaker than his brother, the two boys had a happy childhood, overseen by their wealthy parents. It was a seemingly innocent game the brothers and the cousins often played during New Year festivities that would set Sagawa apart. Whilst their uncle Mitsu would chase the youngsters, pretending to be a boy-eating monster, much to their squeals of mock horror, Sagawa became obsessed with the game. This idea of eating humans sparked something in the young boy, and he would go in search of fairy tales and legends that featured children being devoured. It was noted that Hansel and Gretel, the tale of two children lured, lured, to a gingerbread house in the woods by a wicked witch so she could fatten them up to eat them, was Sagawa's favourite childhood read. This would eventually lead to a sexual awakening for him. An article in The New Criminologist noted, Issei enjoyed the masochistic element inherent in being manhandled, forced into the pot by a powerful giant. It gave him a torrid sensation in his body that he willfully mustered again and again as he lay in his bed at night. Sagawa was a loner at school. He loved learning and was incredibly bright, but the social element was always a struggle for him. This was not helped by his mother, who, out of concern for her frail son, tended to smother him somewhat and therefore did not teach him valuable social skills, including the ability to fend for himself. Being so small in stature, Sagawa realised he was not attracted to Japanese women, who were also petite. Rather, he fantasised about tall, statuesque Western women. He immersed himself in the paintings of French Impressionist Auguste Renoir, who was known for his paintings of fleshy, voluptuous females. By the age of 15, Sagawa had fully equated sex with violence and eating flesh, and to his credit, he contacted a psychiatrist, as he was concerned that his increasingly depraved fantasies were not normal or healthy. However, when the psychiatrist said that Sagawa would have to attend a face-to-face appointment, he decided not to pursue it further. He said later, If I had undergone therapy from that time, I suppose the incident in Paris probably wouldn't have happened. In 1970, when Sagawa was 21 years old, he made his first attempt to live out his fantasy. He had been stalking a German woman and knew where she lived. He broke into her flat with the intention of killing and eating her. The attempted attack was in no way subtle and the woman soon woke and screamed at the small man who was trying to climb on top of her. Sagawa panicked and quickly fled the scene. Remarkably, he then returned to the psychiatrist, this time agreeing to be seen. However, the doctor was so disgusted and dismissive of his patient's concerns that Sagawa made the decision never to tell anyone ever again about his lust for flesh. Sagawa continued with his studies, earning an MA in Shakespearean literature. Then, in 1977, aged 28, he transferred his studies from Tokyo's Wako University to the Sorbonne in Paris in order to feed his desire for Western women. Sagawa had convinced himself that he only needed to fulfil his desire once. That would be enough to satiate his appetite, and he could then go on to live a normal, happy life. 
Needless to say, this is not quite how things were to turn out, and Sagawa made several attempts to attack women, but would always lose his nerve before harming anyone. He said of this time, Almost every night I would bring a prostitute home and then try to shoot them, but for some reason my fingers froze up and I couldn't pull the trigger. In 1980, Sagawa befriended a Dutch student, René Hartveld, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. This is the woman mentioned in his confession at the start of the episode. Although Hartveld had no romantic feelings or desires towards Sagawa, she considered him a friend and would agree to go over for dinner occasionally, where Sagawa would cook authentic Japanese food. Once Sagawa had established Renee's trust on June the 11th, 1981, he invited her to dinner at his apartment at 10 Rue Alanger, explaining that he needed her assistance in translating some German poetry. At 5 foot 10, Renee was over a foot taller than 4 foot 9 inch Sagawa, and he longed to absorb her energy through eating her flesh. Whilst Renee sat at the desk in the small apartment, her back to Sagawa, he carefully extracted his rifle from its hiding place, took aim, and shot Renee in the back before she had time to realise what was happening. Writing about it later, he said, I arranged for her to read the poem for me once more. I lie to her. I tell her I want to record the poem on tape for my Japanese teacher. She believes. I prepare everything. The cassette recorder for the poem, the rifle for the sacrifice. She arrives on time. After drinking tea and whiskey, she speaks. She smiles at me. But I know inside that I'm the strangest one of all. Her yellow sleeveless top shows off her beautiful white arms. I can smell her body. I turn on the recorder. She starts to read. She speaks in perfect German. I reach for the rifle hidden beside the chest of drawers. I stand slowly and aim the rifle at the back of her head. I cannot stop myself. Although Sagawa had finally carried out the act he had fantasised about for the best part of 30 years, it turned out that he had a fear of the sight of blood and promptly fainted upon shooting René, which is understandable. Once he'd recovered, Sagawa knew there was no turning back and he set to work. The following extract from Sagawa's confession is quite graphic and you may want to skip ahead, you may not. I get a knife from the kitchen and stab it deeply into her skin. Suddenly, a lot of sallow fat oozes from the wound. It reminds me of Indian corn. It continues to ooze, it's strange. Finally, I find the red meat under the sallow fat. I scoop it out and put it in my mouth. I chew. It has no smell and no taste. It melts in my mouth like a perfect piece of tuna. I look her in the eyes and say, you were delicious. I have sex with her body. When I hug her, she lets out a breath. I'm frightened. She seems alive. I kiss her and tell her that I love her. Then I drag her body to the bathroom. By now I'm exhausted, but I cut into her hip and put the meat into a roasting pan. After it is cooked, I sit at the table using her underwear as a napkin. They still smell of her body. I use some salt and some mustard, and it is delicious, very high quality meat. Then I go back to the bathroom and cut off her breast and bake it. It swells while it cooks. I serve the breast on the table and eat it with a fork and knife. It isn't very good, too greasy. I try to cut into another part of her body. Her thighs were wonderful. Finally, she is in my stomach. Finally, she is mine. 
It is the best dinner I've ever had. Sagawa then went to sleep with the remains of Renee's body and the following morning he resolved to remove the pieces he wished to save to eat later before disposing of Renee's remains. And he wrote, Today I must finish cutting up her body. I have to put it into suitcases and sink it in the lake. It will be her grave. I touch the cold body again and wonder where I should start. I start to cut off all the meat before amputating the limbs. While I cut her calf, I suddenly want to taste it. I see the beautiful red meat beneath the fat. I grasp her knee and her ankle and tear it with my teeth. It is tender. I slowly chew and savour it. After eating most of the calf, I look at myself in the mirror. There is grease all over my face. And then I start to eat at random. I bite her little toe. It smells of her feet. I stab the knife into her arch and see the red meat deep inside. I thrust my fingers inside and dig out the meat and put it in my mouth. It tastes okay. Then I stab the knife into her armpit. Ever since I saw it under her yellow sleeveless top, I wondered how it would taste this good. The wonderful taste cheers me up and I devour her underarm up to the elbow. After 24 hours, flies start to swarm around Renee's body and chillingly, Sagawa said, they swarm on her face. They seem to tell me that I've lost her forever. It is no longer her. Where is she? She has gone far away. I've broken her like a child who breaks his toy. Sagawa then began preparing to pack the very broken Renee into two large suitcases. He continued, At last I've cut off her head. It is the most difficult thing I've had to do. I try to use the electric knife, but it doesn't work very well, so I use the hatchet. I imagine myself on the guillotine. It is surprisingly easy to cut through. When I grab the hair and hang up the head, I realise I am a cannibal. I put the head in a plastic bag. I separate the body and put it into two plastic bags. They are heavy. It is hard to put them into the suitcases. I'm finished. I call a taxi. Sagawa had already decided where he was going to dispose of the body, so he instructed the taxi driver to take him to the Bois de Boulogne, a 2,000-acre public park located along the western edge of the city of Paris. Once belonging to kings and queens of France, the park was bestowed to Paris by Napoleon III in 1853, but it would soon become well known for a less salubrious reason. On arrival at their destination, the taxi driver watched in bemusement as a small man struggled with the two heavy suitcases, and at one point he quipped, have you got a dead body in there? To which Sagawa laughed and replied that he was just transporting some books. Sagawa had not expected the park to be so busy and was spotted near to the lake where he planned to dump the suitcases. Once he realised he was being watched, he dumped the cases under some nearby bushes and hurried back home. The man who had seen the, quote, small Asian looking man behaving suspiciously went to investigate what had been discarded and was horrified to see a foot when he opened one of the cases. An article in the New Criminologist entitled Celebrity Cannibal said, Issei Sagawa must have known that someone could easily have seen him that night, but the Bois was close to where he lived and he had already decided to dump his cases in one of its lakes. Hurtling through the trees and out onto the street, the minuscule five feet tall figure weighing in at just six stone dashed for home, silently cursing his laxity and undoubtedly wondering when he would now be caught. As it happened, the police had already been called. 
Once home, Sagawa, realising it would not be long before the police came knocking at his door and the fantasy would soon be at an end, continued devouring the remaining parts of Renee, later reminiscing. I try to remember which part of her is in my mouth, but it is difficult to connect the meat with a body. It just seems like a piece of meat. I continue to eat her body until I am caught. Each day the meat becomes more tender, each day the taste is more sweet and delicious. This episode is also sponsored by Tails.com. Every dog is unique. That's why at Tails.com, every dog gets a tasty recipe that's made just for them. When you sign up at Tails.com, you tell them all about your dog and they create a recipe that's tailored to their age, breed, fitness levels and health needs. Your dog gets exactly the right balance of fibre, protein, fats and nutrients and there are no artificial flavours, colours or preservatives. And the portion sizes are just right for your dog too, so that fear of overfeeding or underfeeding is gone. And yes, I do see the irony with this sponsor in this episode. So my family dog, Cassie, who is a lurcher, has a sensitive tummy. She's a bit of a princess, really. Um, But her sensitive tummy has caused lots of problems over the years. I I won't go into too much detail. Um, But what we were able to do with Tails.com was tell them this information and they were then able to tailor Cassie's recipe by adding prebiotics and the right sources of protein and fibre to basically be more gentle on her stomach. And it's really helped her. With Tails.com, you get one delivery once a month, so that last-minute dash to the shops because you've run out of dog food becomes a thing of the past, and that is a great hack in getting yourself more organised, which I am all for. You can pause, cancel, or change your delivery dates via your online account, and you can also get all of your doggy treats through Tails.com, and Cassie absolutely loves the dentistics they do. She goes mad for them, more mad for those dentistics than any other treat she's had in her 11 years on this planet so last time tales.com sponsored the show we had a really good offer for you and this time it's even better i think this is possibly one of the best offers we have ever had for anything if you go to tales.com slash red 21 and tell them all about your dog or use code red 21 at checkout you get one month's worth of free tailored dog food you just pay two pounds for delivery this is a seriously good offer you'll be amazed when you get your delivery it'll have your dog's name written all over it quite literally and um yeah i remember when cassie's first came it was so exciting to see everything because you get stuff thrown in as well so go to tails.com slash red 21 for a whole month's worth of free tailored dog food all you have to do is pay two pounds for delivery you can manage your subscription online as i said or you can pause or cancel at any time and you can also update information about your dog so the recipe is always just right for them so that's tails.com slash red 21 Okay, so four days after Issy had murdered and eaten Renee, he was arrested for her murder and mutilation. He offered no resistance and confessed in full. And when he was arrested at his apartment in Paris, there were still pieces of Renee in his fridge and freezer. And police were struck by Sagawa's fluency and eloquence in French, and also his willingness to cooperate. Now, it would be reasonable to assume that after such brutal acts of depravity, desecration of the body, necrophilia and cannibalism with a sexual motive, the confession and all of the overwhelming evidence against Sagawa, it would be reasonable to assume that he is now rotting behind bars. 
but shockingly, the now 72-year-old is free. And he was a free man five years after the murder and just two years after his incarceration. So what the hell happened after Sagawa was arrested? Well, his wealthy father, Akira, immediately hired a defence lawyer for his son. And after a waiting trial for two years, Issei Sagawa was declared legally insane and therefore unfit to stand trial. Sagawa was visited by author Iniko Yamota, who wanted to hear his version of events, and therefore the controversial book In the Fog ensued. It was published, not only giving a graphic account of everything Sagawa had done to Rene, but it also included photographs he had taken of the body in various states of being stripped for meat. French authorities were, unsurprisingly, furious at the attention Sagawa was receiving and they were unwilling to fund ongoing psychiatric treatment. And so he was deported back to Japan. Upon arrival back on his native soil, Sagawa was admitted to Matsuzawa Hospital where he was examined by psychologists and declared sane. The French court documents were sealed due to charges being dropped and were therefore not released to the Japanese authorities. Subsequently, there were no grounds for Sagawa to be detained. He checked himself out of the hospital on the 12th of August in 1986 and has been a free man ever since. If you had essentially gotten away with murder, you might decide that it is probably for the best to live the rest of your days quietly repenting and getting on with your life without attracting too much attention on yourself. But this is not... Uh, what Issei Sagawa did. He has now become a celebrity in Japan and he has a large cult following. Comparisons have been made to fellow famed cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer, who was killed in prison by another inmate disgusted by his crimes. But why are so many people revolted by Dahmer, yet enamoured by the shy, small, softly spoken, slightly awkward Sagawa? Whatever the reason for his cult following, Sagawa has managed to capitalise on his notoriety, selling his paintings of voluptuous women, writing 20 books about his crime, giving interviews, taking part in documentaries, cooking shows where he happily consumed raw meat, and most disturbingly of all, playing himself in a low-budget porn film. Maybe even playing with himself, who knows. Anyway, it's called Unfaithful Wife, Shameful Torture, if you're interested in finding that on Pornhub. In some interviews, Sagawa seems almost bewildered by his fame. He will happily sign copies of his books for fans, but at the same time, he criticises them for wanting to read his work. He's also adamant that his feelings towards the flesh are perfectly normal. In his own words, it's simply a fetish. For example, if a normal man fancied a girl, he'd naturally feel a desire to see her as often as possible, to be close to her, to smell her and kiss her, right? To me, eating is just an extension of that. Frankly, I can't fathom why everyone doesn't feel this urge to eat, to consume other people. Inspired by Issei Sagawa, the Rolling Stones wrote the song Too Much Blood, featured on their 1983 album Undercover. At the time of its release, singer Mick Jagger said, well, there was this scandalous, murderous story in France. It was a true story about this Japanese guy who murdered this girl and it sort of captured the imagination of the French public and the Japanese. The Russians wanted to make a movie out of it. So that was the first bit and then I started becoming more light-hearted about it, movies and all. It came out as a sort of anti-gratuitous cinema of violence and it's a kind of anti-violent thing. So some of the lyrics are... 
Everything you see on the movie screen is tame. Everything's going to be arranged. A friend of mine was this Japanese who had a girlfriend in Paris. He had to date her for six months and eventually she said yes. You know, he took her to his apartment, cut off her head, put the rest of her body in the refrigerator, ate her piece by piece, put her in the refrigerator, put her in the freezer. And when he ate her, he took her bones to the Bois de Boulogne. By chance, a taxi driver noticed him burying the bones. So where is Issei Sagawa now? In November 2013, he suffered a cerebral haemorrhage and now receives assistance from his younger brother and a carer in his small apartment in Kawasaki City in Japan. A newspaper contacted him for an article entitled The Post-War History of 100 Million Japanese. When asked how he feels about the events of that fateful day back in June 1981, Sagawa reflected, When I think back on how gentle Rene was, I ask myself why I did what I did, and there's no end to my feelings of bitterness. But I wanted to eat her. That doesn't mean I wanted to kill her, but I came to the realisation that in order to eat her, I had to kill her. If I think about it now, if instead of her flesh I'd been able to obtain her pubic hairs or urine and put them in my mouth, I might have been satisfied but I wasn't able to bring myself to ask. I guess I was afraid my asking her for it would have disgusted her. Looking at the sun radiating through the trees, I thought how pretty it looks. My life seems to have been a series of recurring episodes of contradictory feelings, such as I want to eat it and eating it is forbidden. Now is the first time in my life to have such tranquil feelings. So as far as we know, Issei Sagawa never went on to re-offend. And I suppose if we think back to his feelings in the 1970s before he killed and ate Rene, he did say that he just needed to do this once and he would be able to get on with his life. And I suppose uh, he's, he's been true to his word, although there is no justice for Rene in all of this, which is... Um, a great shame and I think there was also an element of humour that comes into this case uh, when lots of people talk about it possibly because it's so prevalent in in modern culture but we mustn't forget that Renee died a horrible death and there was no dignity for her so on that note thank you for listening as I said me and Bethan will be back next week and um, a usual service will resume so thank you for bearing with us the last couple of weeks Um, don't forget to check us out on all of the social medias apart from Twitter we don't bother with that anymore but come and join our Facebook group we have loads of discussions on there every day me and Bethan get heavily involved in it Um, Bethan usually tells me to get off it after I've had a couple of glasses of wine Um, but sometimes I don't and I stay on it and we have some good fun so uh, so yeah find us on Facebook find us on Instagram we're also on YouTube and of course if you want to support the show on Patreon then head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast until next week we will see you then bye <laughs>